Our starting point this morning is Daniel 9, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and pleased for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this reading of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have been pleased to uh, give us these things, Father. Otherwise, uh, we would be lost in darkness without Your Word. Father, we recognize that Lord, without the accompaniment of your Holy Spirit working and operating, that, Father, there would be no eternal benefit from this. Father, we call on you now that you would be pleased, Father, to open up our hearts and our minds as we have just sang. Father, give us ears and eyes that we may see and hear these things, Father, that our hearts may be changed by them that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This morning we continue in our discussion of what I, I think everyone can easily see is a vitally important uh, question. And the question, again, is why do we believe uh, our Bibles uh, to be uh, the very words of God? Why? I mean, every Sunday we gather around this book in order to study and learn. And through the week, uh, what do we do? We, we, we look to this book in order to be changed by it. Uh, we, we look to the pages of this book uh, that they may govern our lifestyles, that, the, that, the, that these words may govern our thoughts, uh, that these words may be seen really as the, uh, as the uh, governor, if you will, of our lives. And every hour of every day we seek grace in order to be shaped and conformed to the doctrines and precepts of this book. Given all of this, uh, what could be more important than the simple question? Why do we believe the Bible to be uh, the Word of God? Now, adding weight to this question is the fact that there are many in our culture who are seeking an intelligent answer to this important question. You can almost hear them say, you know, I see that you, you, you really do sincerely believe this book to be God's Word, don't you? And I see that you are sincerely really trying to follow uh, the words of this book, that you're really trying to align your life up with this book. I can see that. Could you please just answer this for me? Now, why is it that you're so convinced that the words in this book are indeed the very words of God? A pretty straightforward and simple inquiry, isn't it? A very important one as well, huh? Well, again, I want to add this, disc this disclaimer. I think it's very important that I say right from the start that deep saving conviction of the Bible is the Word of God is something that is produced in, in the heart by the Holy Spirit. We looked at several passages last week to prove that point. We don't have time to go into those passages again. I would just turn your attention to the recording last week and you'll hear that. 
but I showed from the scripture that saving conviction, that the word of God, that the Bible is indeed the word of God, is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit. And that's why a child may be completely convinced that this is the word of God, that this is the very words of God. And if you ask the child, why do you believe that? They're you know, not going to be able to give you an answer, but they are convinced. And a new believer, equally so, convinced this is the word of God. If he or she was asked, tell me, why do you believe it to be the word of God? They might not be able to give you a very good answer for that. And in that case, a seasoned vet who's walked with God for many, many years. If they were to be asked, why do you believe the Bible would be the Word of God. They might not be able to give you much of an answer. Why? Because this saving conviction has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. It's been wrought by the Holy Spirit. Now, 1 Peter 3.15, we looked at last week, calls us to go beyond and be prepared to be able to answer anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that we have. And that's really the purpose of taking a few moments here in Daniel 9 and uh, embarking on this, this uh, uh, digression. I don't even really like to call it a digression. That's why I used the word excursus last week. It's really what this is. It's where we, you know, if we were writing a book, this would be probably a place where we would say, see Appendix A, and we'd go to the back of the book, and then we would have this discussion as to why the Bible is indeed the Word of God. But as a pastor, I recognize that we're all in different places. For some of us, uh, this is familiar ground, or at least it's ground you've You've, you've kind of been on before, uh, but for others, this is actually uh, really new. So um, some of you might be sitting here and saying, you know, I've never really questioned uh, the Bible to be the Word of God. I've just always believed that it is. And if you're sitting here this morning saying that, I'm right there with you. Uh, I have never really questioned that either. I've always, I've always received the Bible as the Word of God, and I've never really, um, I've never really challenged that ever in my life. Um, and as a consequence, if someone were to ask me why I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, I might be tempted to say, well, it's just what I've always believed. Uh, it's, what my, you know, it's what my parents believed. It's what their parents believed. It's kind of the way we grew up. Now, um, is that a convincing answer to the person who's inquiring? Because if they were to go to an Orthodox Muslim family and ask why they believe the Koran to be the Word of God, they might get the same answer, wouldn't they? Well, you know, that's kind of what I've always believed, you know. Um, it's, what, it's what Daddy has taught me. It's what Mom has taught me. It's what, it's what Pap always believed. They would give a similar answer, correct? Now, because of this... Um, we need to come up with an answer here. We need to come up with an answer. And uh, my purposes really this morning are twofold. One, I want to deepen our own convictions that the Bible is the Word of God. And two, I want to be able to give an intelligent and winsome, that's an important word here, an intelligent and winsome response to that question, that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. And last week, you'll recall, I thought it would be best to to start with a short and somewhat simple answer, which is what I did last week, and it really, it, the, the answer really was around three words. Does anybody who heard the message remember what those three words were? Uh, 
What was the first word? Resurrection, right? And the second word was miracles. And the third word was either coherence or consistency, whichever you want. And that's why I'm repeating this. It's been a long time since last Sunday, hasn't it, in terms of remembering things like this. In fact, actually, it's a long time to Tuesday and trying to remember these kinds of things. And uh, this doesn't happen uh, overnight. It takes time. Uh, one of my reasoning for giving a short and simple answer here is I want to give you an answer that everyone's able to understand. I want to give an answer that everybody's able to remember. And I want to give an answer that everybody's able to repeat. So we need to be able to understand it. We need to be able to remember it. We need to be able to repeat it. And I think the resurrection is really uh, pretty easy to remember. Why are we Christians? Because Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He's been raised on the third day. And by the resurrection, what is proved? What is proved is all His claims were true. And among His claims was the claim to be God in the flesh, was it not? And through the course of His ministry, Jesus embraced the Hebrew Scriptures, the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament, he embraced those as the Word of God. And His resurrection proved His claims to be true. So why do I believe at least the Old Testament? Why do I believe the Old Testament to be the Word of God? It's because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection proved that, proved that Jesus is who He claimed to be, namely God. And Jesus embraced the Old Testament. So in short, what we have happening here is God Himself has come and told us that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Does that make sense? What about the New Testament? Well, after Jesus' resurrection, He empowered the apostles, didn't He? He gave them a message to go and preach. Now, anybody can skip around the, the valley and say, okay, we got, this, uh, we got this message for you. It's a message from, from God, and we can do things like that. Any one of us could, could do that, and we could say anything we want. But here's what we can't do. We can't raise people from the dead. We can't cause blind beggars and lame beggars you know, just to jump up and down and praise God. We can't heal blind eyes. We can't heal deaf ears. The apostolic ministry was a ministry that was accompanied with many signs and wonders, wasn't it? Of course, God did that to authenticate their message. But we said a third thing about that, didn't we, last week? That even that is not enough. What if their message was contradictory to the Old Testament Scriptures? Then it was to be rejected, wasn't it? So the message had to be in, with, consistent with or coherent with the Old Testament. And it is, isn't it? Is the New Testament Scriptures, are they at odds with the Old Testament? No. When proper, properly interpreted, it all meshes together perfectly, doesn't it? It all meshes together perfectly. Now, this morning, I want to I extend this answer. Our short answer is resurrection, miracles, and consistency. Write those three words down and, and, and mull that over in your mind uh, so that you can begin to give uh, uh, these kinds of responses. Think it through. If you have any problems with my answer, come and see me, please. Uh, because I'm offering this to you so that you can understand it, so that you can remember it, 
so that you can repeat it. Someone might be asking this question to you sometime soon. Let's extend the answer a little bit. Let's extend it. You know, I want to com- continue to explore this by looking at two things. One, what I'll call the internal evidence, and two, by what we'll call the external evidence. We have the internal evidence, we have external evidence. Let me start with the internal evidence. First of all, uh, you might want to write this down. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And if you look at Daniel 9 and Daniel 9 and verse 2, we see just one example of hundreds of examples of this in the Bible. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the what? Word of the Lord. It's a claim to be the Word of God, isn't there? I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. What does Daniel call the writings of Jeremiah? He calls them the word of the Lord. Okay, that's a claim that could easily be made. But we have something here that authenticates that claim. And I can't wait to show it to you. It's fulfilled prophecy. We've begun to look at it, but we haven't looked at the whole sum of it. Uh, what's being said about Jeremiah's writings here? Well, Jerusalem, Jeremiah, we've, we looked at several passages, Jeremiah 25, 27, 29, uh, where Jeremiah made it really clear that Babylon would, dis- uh, would come and destroy the nation of Israel, sack all their stuff, carry their stuff away, and that Israel would be captive to the Babylonians for 70 years, correct? But then another nation would come and conquer Babylon, and then Israel would be allowed to return back to her homeland. Well, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, but there's something that's even more astounding than that that I want to show you this morning. Long before Jeremiah's prophecy concerning these 70 years, Isaiah prophesied concerning a decree, a decree that a future world leader would issue well, that would permit Israel, not only permit Israel to go back to her homeland, but actually would finance the project. And Isaiah not only only foretells this, probably about well over 150 years before the fact, uh, more likely probably 160, 170 years before the fact, but Isaiah actually names the king by name. If you will turn with me to Isaiah 44, and look, beginning with verse 28, I'll show you what we're talking about. If you're using the Bible that's on or near your seats, it's page 605. 605. Starting with Isaiah 44 and verse 28. We read these words, Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 45, starting with verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, 
to open the doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, here's what we know about the history of Babylon. After 70 years, after Israel is taken into captivity, Babylon is destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. And guess who is reigning at that time? A king named Cyrus. That would be like speaking about events that would take place 175 years from now, naming the demise of the world superpower at that time, naming the nation that would overcome uh, that world superpower, and naming the ruler who would indeed be in charge, in control at that time, and going even further and saying that he would issue a certain decree and then going into detail about that decree. That is astonishing. That is incredible. What is God up to here? But before we get to that, listen to these words. You don't need to turn there. But listen to these words that are taken from Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is about 539, 538 B.C. It's after the 70 years have elapsed that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Just like God said it would happen 175 years earlier. 
And just for the fun of it, you're still in Isaiah. Look with me again to verses, uh, Isaiah 45, verses 4 to 6. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. That's, po- that's a po- poetic way of saying, for the sake of my people. For the sake of my people. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. That's the purpose. That we may know that we are being spoken to by Almighty God. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Here we have this detailed prophecy given long before it comes to pass. Jeremiah prophesies the duration of Israel's captivity. Isaiah names the king who would issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And now anybody can call anybody a writings they want the word of God. But what God has done here is twofold. One, He has shown His sovereignty. He's shown His control. And in our study of Daniel, we've seen that over and over again, haven't we? What God is, He's, he's, he's showing His control of the future. Do you remember We talked about that. We see that the future is in His hands. And that means that history is His story. That's today's future is tomorrow's history. And we even made an application of that several weeks ago that if, if history is in God's hands, if history really is His story, our story is His story, isn't it? God is in control. But the second thing that He is up to is He's authenticating these writings as His holy word by bringing... These things to pass, isn't he? Let's do another one. This time, it's Psalm 22, which you should have your, your, uh, your insert in, saving the place. Some of you probably already know where I'm going with this one. We've read it two Sundays in a row, and you can't help but to read it and see the, uh, the, uh, uh, the foretelling of the crucifixion that's in the psalm. As you read it, you can see that you recognize some of the verses from the passion narratives of the New Testament. Now, the primary message of Psalm 22 is really a message of comfort to a righteous sufferer who is at the hands of wicked men. And, of course, its quintessential fulfillment would be uh, Christ Jesus, who really is truly the only righteous sufferer. None of us are, are innocent, although we may find ourselves suffering for something that we didn't do. Uh, we're still, we cannot say that we're innocent parties, uh, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, but in Christ Jesus, uh, He truly is a righteous sufferer. If you look at Psalm 22 and verse 7, mind you, uh, in fact, if you back up uh, before that, if you look at the, uh, the title uh, to Psalm 22, you'll see this, it's ascribed to King David. King David lived about a thousand years before Christ. So approximately a millennium before the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 7 reads, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Now, stare at that verse for a moment. While I go a thousand years into the future to a familiar verse, because we studied these verses not that long ago, in Matthew Uh, Chapter 27, verse 29, and listen to what Matthew uh, says as he's describing the suffering of Jesus. He says, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, 
they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And here's another one, ten verses later. Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. If you look at the next verse, Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Stare at that verse while I go a thousand years into the future. The Matthew 27, verses 42 to 43. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. It's astonishing, isn't it? Skip down to 22, Psalm 22, verse 16. Psalm 22 and verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Do you see a little footnote after feet? Does everybody see that? I'm going to draw your attention to it right now. If you look at the bottom of the page... The footnote will say something like this. Some Hebrew manuscripts, Septuagint, Vulgate, Syriac, uh, like a lion, they are, at, uh, they are at my hands and feet. That's really small print if you're using the, the Bible that's on or near your seats. What the translators are doing are saying, okay, in many Hebrew manuscripts and some Syriac manuscripts and some of the Latin Vulgate manuscripts, uh, there's an alternative reading here. And I'm just pointing that to your attention because that's going to come up here in a few minutes. Just hold on to that for a few minutes. Back to Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, some apologists will point out that David is writing this long before the Roman Empire ever came to be. If I can remember my history correctly, I don't think there was any vestiges of the Roman Empire until the 700s. So maybe for some reason 760s come into mind. Some of you might be more history buffs than you might know the dates better than me, but uh, that's long after the time of King David. There's no Roman Empire. So the form of execution known as crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet. It's not even known to anyone yet. David would have known nothing about that. Yet he speaks about hands being and feet, be, and feet being pierced. You see that? 2216. That was the common way wasn't the only way, but it was the common way the criminals were fastened to a Roman cross. If you look at verse 18, Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now look, look at that verse while I go to a thousand years into the future to the Gospel of John, verse 19, or I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 23, where we read these words. When the soldiers, now incidentally, the soldiers would have known nothing about Psalm 22. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did 
these things. Now, I'm told, scholars tell us, that there are far more than 200 of these things uh, in the Bible. Uh, these uh, uh, messianic prophecies concerning Christ. So uh, we, could go, we could actually do this for a long time if we've got more than 200 of these, couldn't we? We could spend a lot of time doing this. Uh, but we need to move on. Uh, this, is what we would, this is what we would call the internal evidence. There's more, but this is what I'll leave you with this morning. Let's move on to the external evidence. For that, if you would turn to 2 Peter 1.16. And that's found on page 1018. 2 Peter 116. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? We were eyewitnesses. Now, hold on to that word, eyewitnesses. As I, uh, uh, you don't need to turn here, just hold on to that as I read another passage for you. This one's from 1 John, the beginning of his letter, the prologue of his First letter, uh, be chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's saying the same thing. He's going a little further than saying eyewitnesses. Yeah, we're eyewitnesses, but we're also ear witnesses. We saw, we heard, our hands touched that which was from the beginning, the eternal Word which was made manifest to us. We've seen Him, we've heard Him, we've touched Him. And now we proclaim these things to you that, your joy, that our joy may be complete by you embracing the same and coming and having fellowship with us. You don't need to turn here, but just think for a moment. The Apostle Paul does the same thing, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And then he says, most of whom are still alive. What's the Apostle Paul doing there? He's saying, listen, if, you're, if there's any question here, if you're, if you're in any kind of question here, listen, most of, these, most of these folks are still alive. Go question them. Do it one at a time. You know, go over and ask Ernie. He was there. Go ask Stephen. Go ask Karen. Go ask Sue. Do it separately. See if their testimony doesn't, doesn't line up and match. Physician Luke says, okay, that's what I'm going to go do. Listen to what Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things 
that you have been taught, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Systematically, Luke investigates these things. He investigates these things. And what is the outcome of his investigation? It's the gospel that we call Luke. That's the outcome of his investigation. Now, in our age of science, some are saying, well, I won't believe the Bible unless it can be scientifically proved to be the Word of God. But it's often pointed out rightly that we do not prove things like this by way of the scientific method. We don't. The scientific method involves what? It involves measuring, observing, and repeating. Measuring, uh, uh, Measuring, observing, and repeating. There's no way to conduct such an experiment here. How do you... How do, you, how do you measure the resurrection? How do you measure miracles? How do you observe them? How do you repeat them in this scientific way? We just don't, we don't, we don't investigate things of this nature that way. That's not to say we don't use science. Uh, we do something very similar to this every day. Detectives go to the crime scene. What do they do at the crime scene? What is the first thing a detective is looking for at the crime scene? He's looking for eyewitnesses. Why? Because that's the most powerful thing for a jury. I mean, you can have some guy in a white coat come in with a, with a PowerPoint display and display all of this stuff, and a jury can watch it, but they're not, gonna be, they're not really going to be as moved as they are if you bring in 25 witnesses. It's all the same thing, and our question from all types of different angles and their story cooperates perfectly. That's not to say that science isn't used in this. Actually, we do use science. Science plays a role. Science plays a role in, in, in the criminal realm. We call that forensic science. It's a, it's a large discipline today and it's used. We also use science today in all of this. Science is what tells us how old some of the ancient manuscripts we have cataloged in, the, in existence are. And that's what I really want to bring up now because sometimes a person might say this, okay, how do you know, you know, how do I know that what, uh, what I'm reading here in the pages of the New and Old Testaments are really the words God gave us? In other words, I might put it another way. How do I know that the Bible I'm reading is the same Bible that they were reading? This is a popular question. I was asked this question as recently as my grandfather's funeral. A friend of mine asked me that question. He said, listen, I can tell you something and you can tell her something and she can tell him something and it can go right around the room and by the time it gets back to me, it ain't going to be anything like I told the first person. And we can perform that exercise and, and prove that to be true almost every time, couldn't we? He says, now how do I know? I'm reading the Bible. How do I know that, that, that what I'm reading is the same thing they're reading? It's the manuscript evidence. That's how I answered his question. We have cataloged into existence over 5,600 Greek manuscripts, some of which date all the way back to like 40 to 60 years of the original. And these Greek manuscripts were translated into other languages. We saw in the little footnote in Psalm 22, uh, the uh, Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, Syriac. You know, these, 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 Greek trans- these Greek manuscripts were translated into Syriac, into Latin, into Coptic, into Ethiopian, into Armenian, a whole bunch of other different ancient languages. 
And when all of those ancient manuscripts that we have cataloged in, consist, in existence are added up, we have over 24,000 of these things. 24,000 of these things that we can study and we can compare one to the other. Now, in terms of ancient, ancient writings, it's often, you often hear people say, you know, uh, comparison with other ancient writings, like, for instance, uh, Plato, we have something like seven ancient manuscripts, and the oldest one, I'm told, was written about 1,300 years after the original could have been written. So there's a 1,300-year gap between uh, when Plato could have written the original and the oldest manuscript that we have. Uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, there's about 10 of uh, ancient manuscripts, and there's about a 1,000-year gap between when the original could have been written. Um, here we have 24,000 They take us all the way back to within a hundred years of the original. Now, that's astonishing. Now, what some will say, will say, yeah, okay, you, you, you're correct there. You've got a mountain of, of manuscripts, but the problem is you've got errors all over the place. They're all in contradiction of each other. No, they're not. You remember when we were back in Psalm 22, verse 16, I showed you the footnote, asked you to kind of keep that in your mind, that there's an alternate reading for that verse, my hands and feet, they pierced my hands and feet. No, it's like there was a line at my hands and feet. Okay, that's one of the discrepancies. A good Bible will point these things out to you. It's footnoted. Now, here, if you're in any question or any doubt about this, here, here's your assignment. It's good to try to read through the Bible once a year, or at least once every year and a half. Okay, from now on, read all the footnotes. Because the translators aren't hiding the discrepancies. They are there. They involve spelling of names. They involve uh, sometimes copyist errors. Mind you, they didn't take these manuscripts down to Kinko's and run them off on the copier. They were doing this by hand. They involve uh, sometimes phraseology is different. Sometimes word order is different. The interesting thing about word order, if you get word order fouled up in English, it could be disastrous. You get word or order fouled up in Greek, it really is oftentimes no consequence whatsoever doesn't change the meaning of the syntax. Greek isn't set up that way. But you'll find these discrepancies. As you find these discrepancies, you're, you know, as Apostle Paul calls us sensible people, we're sensible people, take a look. Take a look at each one. See if it alters any major or minor doctrine. Do you know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover the answer is no. We don't form major or minor doctrines on one single verse of the Bible. That's what the devil does. That's what he does before Jesus in his temptation. He takes one verse of Scripture and puts a spin on it. That's not how we interpret Scripture. You ever notice that a lot of these sermons, they all sound the same? It's like, okay, we're in, we're in I shouldn't be telling you this, but we're in Daniel and I preach a sermon and it, it really kind of sounded like a sermon we had back in Matthew when we were studying Matthew. It's probably because it probably is. It's teaching the same doctrine. Because these doctrines are taught all over the place in the Bible. We don't just go to one place for a doctrine. We wouldn't develop a doctrine from one place. The Bible repeats itself. Why does it repeat itself? For the same reason I'm repeating the short answer this morning. Because we can't remember. Do you have trouble remembering things like me? And we have to hear things over and over again to get them, don't we? And when you study these so-called discrepancies, go ahead. You don't need to understand the ancient languages to find out where they are because there's footnotes. 
And believe me, the skeptics are holding the translators to these footnotes. You're going to find that they don't change or alter any doctrine, major or minor. So the short answer in conclusion, why do we believe our Bibles to be the Word of God, everybody? It's one, what? Resurrection. Can we say that loudly? Resurrection. Two, miracles. Three, consistency, right? You get those three things in your head and then figure out what goes underneath each one. Let's do it yourself in your mind. You'll be putting it in your own words. You'll be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you believe the Bible to be the Word of God and also deepen your own faith because now you're going to be making these discoveries over and over again yourself as you read the Bible. You say, ha, I see consistency with the Old Testament. Ah, there's those signs and wonders. There's the eyewitnesses, which brings us to the more extended answer. We have internal evidence, right? Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And it backs up that claim with it fulfilled prophecy, doesn't it? And then we have external evidence. We have eyewitnesses. We have the manuscript evidence. We have all of these things. Faith in the Bible is the Word of God. It's not a leap in the dark like some would have you to believe. It's a leap into the light. Now, I want to leave you one last thing very quickly. I'm not defending the Bible. Everybody hear that? I am not defending the Bible. I might give you the impression that I'm defending the Bible. I'm not. Charles Spurgeon said this, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it. It will defend itself. I take that same position. God doesn't need Rick Anderson to defend his word. <laughs> Just read the book. Unchain the lion. It'll defend itself. I'm giving the reason why we should believe the Bible to be the word of God. I'm trying to be obedient to Peter's injunction in, in 1 Peter 3.15 so that we will be able to give a reasonable answer to anyone who asks us why we believe the 39 books of the Old Testament to be the word of God the 27 books of the New Testament to be the Word of God. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have given us a book that self-authenticates itself. We thank You, Father, that as we study Your Word, as we look to the pages of Scripture and we see the amazing things, Father, that, Lord, we realize that this is, is, this is a book that has one, ultimately one author, and that it is a book that is far beyond any human composition, anything that a human being could compose. But Father, we also recognize, Lord, that saving belief in this fact is something that can only come from You. So, Father, I pray that, Lord, You would equip us to be able to answer these questions in a loving and winsome fashion, that we'd be equipped to do this. But Father, we recognize that our answers, no matter how polished they are, will not talk someone into the kingdom of God, will not ultimately cause them to look at the Bible in a saving way. So, Father, we call on You that, Lord, You would work in us to be able to uh, recall these things, that we'd be able to understand these things, that we'd be able to repeat these things, and that, Father, You would also work as uh, we answer those who are inquiring. Why do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Why can you say that the Bible is the Word of God and the Koran is not the Word of God? How can you make claims like this? Father, equip us for these good works that you've prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.